If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book called The Song of Songs. It's immediately after the book we looked at last week, Ecclesiastes. And again, if you're unfamiliar with those books are, turn to the middle of the Bible, in which you'll probably find yourself in Isaiah, and start flipping backwards. You'll very quickly hit the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, as it's listed in some translations. We will be in the Song of Songs, chapter 8, this morning. Song of Songs, chapter 8. Today we live, unfortunately, in a culture that though it is obsessed with sex, it knows very little of love, true biblical love. According to U.S. News and World Report, more money is spent each year on pornography than country music, rock music, jazz music, classical music, Broadway plays, and ballet combined. Our obsession with sex is also seen the devastating effects it has on our young people. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, the average American adolescent will witness nearly 14,000 sexual references per year on television. Yet only 165 of these address birth control, self-control, abstinence, the risk of pregnancy, or STDs. According to recent data, 61% of all high school seniors have had sexual intercourse, and about half are currently sexually active. 21% have had four or more partners. Adolescents have the highest rates for STDs. Approximately one-fourth of sexually active adolescents become infected with an STD each year, accounting for 3 million cases. People under the age of 25 account for two-thirds of all STDs in the United States. In our culture, we have divorced sex from God's intention, and the result is nothing but sin and brokenness for our society. Four out of every ten children are born to single parents. According to Barna Research, about 50% of adults between the ages of 13 and 34 have cohabitated. If you raise that bar to age 49, it's still one-third. According to a popular author, the question children used to ask most frequently was, what does your father do? Now that question they ask is, are your parents still together? While thinking about these statistics is sobering, even depressing, the truth is there is still hope. There is hope for us. There is hope for our culture. What we must recover in our churches and in our homes is a biblical view of love and sex. We need to understand why God created these things. We need to communicate that information to our children. And then we need to live in such a way that we actually believe what God says about these things in His Word. And as we continue looking at the books of the Bible, book by book, we have come to this one book that rejoices and exalts in the gifts of love and sex and marriage like no other, the book called The Song of Songs. Now in the past and even today, some want to see the entire book as an allegory for God's love for His people. And I I don't think that will fly. I think if you've actually read that book, you realize that... Uh, certainly it will say something about God's love for His people and His people's love for them. But the immediate, the immediate uh, message that it's seeking to, to convey is what love between a husband and a wife is supposed to be all about. 
Song of Songs is actually a collection of love poetry. And in these poems are essentially two characters, the husband and the wife, the man and the woman. Though there is also the chorus of the daughters of Jerusalem that will sometimes come out from the background and say something or be addressed and told something. But unlike most of the other books in the Bible, even though this, this book has characters, there is no real discernible storyline. You're not going to find a progression of falling in love and then engagement and then marriage and then life happily ever after. That's not how the, the Song of Songs is put together. In fact, if you try and read it that way, uh, you're going to realize or you're going to believe mistakenly that this couple has not been very nice but a little naughty because the actual marriage takes place at the, at the very middle of the book. And yet there's things that should take place after the marriage that come before the middle of the book. And so you realize it's not a linear order. It's a, it's a cycling of ideas and of thoughts about this whole relationship. That being said, you also need to remember that this book comes in a larger context of biblical themes. In other words, what this book does not want to endorse in any way is intimacy before marriage. It does not want to encourage promiscuity. In fact, this is one of the clear warnings throughout the book that this is taking place in a larger context of God's design for love and for marriage. And so there is an essential, vital element of monogamy to the love that is rejoiced in and lifted up and exalted in this book. Furthermore, again, we have to remember when you read this that it is poetry. The book is filled with poetic images. Now, because it is poetry and because it's about love, there sometimes you'll, you'll read something and you'll immediately blush. Bear in mind, very often they're being less specific than what you think. Okay? So, in other words, sometimes an apple is an apple and nothing more. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Uh, you'll find some, some popular preachers and authors that disagree with that, but uh, I think that when they want to talk about specific parts, they will identify those specific parts, which they actually do. Rather, there's a more, less specific, more general bliss and delight that is being described in the act of lovemaking. In other words, don't get caught up in the particulars, but focus on the general that is the, the general experience that is being lifted up. Furthermore, you will encounter at first glance what seem like very odd comparisons. For example, in chapter four we read this: the man speaking to the woman, "Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young." Now. After the kids were in bed, I told that to Melinda. I'm not sure she would take that as a compliment. You have to ask yourself, well, what is going on? What are these yous? You have to understand that, that the, the comparisons that are being made, the analogy being made, is always with the quality of the thing being compared. Okay, so it's not that, that you know. There's another place where it's like you know your neck is like you know a cedar, and your nose the Tower of Lebanon. I don't think any woman wants to hear that today. Okay, uh, you know, honey, your your nose reminds me of the World Trade Center when it was still standing. You know, that's that, that's not what Solomon was going for you. Okay, but there is a certain quality in that thing, not necessarily the way it actually appears to the eyes visually. It's going for for essence and quality here. So, for instance, when we're talking about these hues and everything else. What, what is he talking about? He's talking about the qualities like these ewes. Her teeth are white. They're wet. They're symmetrical. They're all there. They've not fallen out yet because of bad hygiene or old age. And so he is saying she is pleasing to the eye. In the end, as we read through this, what we need to understand is that the central message of the song is this. Love 
and marriage and sex are all God's good gifts to humanity. They are good gifts that are to be enjoyed to their fullest, but only as God intends. This is what we want to see this morning. In order to do that, we want to look at the first seven verses of chapter 8. So I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spice wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from under the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she bore you, who was in, uh, there she bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is the word of God. From this passage, I think what you really have is the whole psalm, or the whole song, song building to this climax in chapter 8. And I think what we have here is a description of what love should be like in a biblical context. What, what, what are these characteristics of love? And I think there are four things here that we could see, and I want us to look at them this morning. So, first of all, when we look at the Song of Songs, we see that love is meant to be passionate. Love is meant to be passionate. Again, uh, we have verses 1 through 3. Oh, that you were like a brother to me. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you into the house. I would give you wine to drink, the juice of the pomegranate. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. Now, again, we have to read this through the cultural lens, don't we? Because if we don't, we're immediately going to think there is something backwoods going on here, right? I mean, I want my husband, my lover to be my, be my, my, my brother. What is that about, right? I mean, that sounds, you know, uh, gross and inappropriate. But again, you have to understand what's going on. In the cultural uh, setting of the day, it was considered socially taboo to show loving affection even between a married couple. You know, so, so even today, you go to some old Scottish churches and, you know, and you know, here, you, know, you might put your arm around your wife's back. Oh, that's a no-no. You don't do that in public. You don't hold hands. This guy, you don't even kiss in public. The one exception to this, though, was little kids. You got little kids running around, and they may be dancing and holding hands. They may give each other a, a hug, particularly if they're brother and sister. They give each other a hug or maybe a little, a little peck on the cheek or something. No problem. They're brother and sister. They love each other. They're, they're showing affection that's all right and good. Now, some of that's even a carryover today, isn't it? I mean, you know... I don't care if they're wearing rings or, or not. When you're standing in line at the grocery store, you don't want to see a couple making out in front of you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, does anybody really want to see that? No. And what do we? Well, there's even a phrase now. But you know, get a room. I mean, isn't that what we think and say? It's like you know, we just it makes us feel a little uncomfortable. We don't we don't want to see that. It's not that they sh- shouldn't be doing it. They should just do it behind closed doors, right? Well, likewise, if you've got you know, little brother or sister, and they're playing and they're hugging, and we don't think anything about that, even if it's out in public. Likewise here, what this woman is thinking, 
that what's going on in her mind is she is out in public. Perhaps it's the market. Perhaps they're at a, a, a family gathering and she sees her beloved and she wants him. She, she desires to have him. And so she says, oh, if you were just like a brother to me, I could run up and I could embrace you and I could, and I could kiss you. She gets wrapped up in a desire for her lover that is, that is almost unquenchable. All she can think about is being with him, embracing him, kissing him. She even begins to fantasize about them holding each other in bed. His left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. As, as a married couple, that's not a wrong way to think. In fact, I'll even go farther. That's the way it's supposed to be. You, you understand that? You, you're sitting at the potluck in, in two weeks, and you, you notice your wife across the table. And passion should start to fire. You say, man, get this meeting over with. I want to get out of here. Okay? I want to come over there. I want to, I want to embrace you. I want to get, that's normal. That's the way God designed it. That's the way it's supposed to be. Marriage is not supposed to be this bare formal agreement. Yes, I will take care of you in sickness and health. Done. Well, that's, that's nice. That's helpful, but it should be more than that. Unfortunately, culture doesn't get that, does it? I saw this t-shirt. I've seen it several times, but, this, you know, got like, you know, the, you know, the little male-female outlines in the bathroom. They've got that kind of stylized characters on the front, but it's clear the guys in the tux and the ladies in a, in a wedding dress. They've obviously been married. Underneath it says, game over. What is that saying? I say, no more fun. You're married, right? Well, you know, frankly, the Bible is saying the opposite. It's saying, married, game on. You go for it. Have fun, rejoice, be passionate with one another. That is the way God has designed it to be. And frankly, it, let me be honest, if it's not that way, and you're, now I understand age and some things, you know, they're not going to be the same when you're in your 20s maybe. I understand that. But if there is still not some kind of desire, some kind of passion that exists in your marriage, then either by yourself with the Bible in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other, and you talking to your spouse across the table, or sitting down with one of the elders, you need to talk through some issues there because marriage, is, marriage and love is not meant to just be this kind of best friends for life thing. It's supposed to be more than that because God has designed it to be more than that. That's the way God made you. But, but understand this. There's a time and a place for that kind of passion in your life. Notice, right after this, this explosion of desire that she's expressing for her lover, notice what she does. She turns in verse 4 and says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the second characteristic of love that we see in the song and really in the whole Bible. Love is meant to be guarded Love is meant to be guarded. The woman has just said that she desires to be with her husband. She desires to show him affection. She longs to be with him in the full biblical sense. And all of that is good in the proper time. But she says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is, in fact, a common refrain throughout the book. We see it in chapter 2 where she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And she says the exact same thing again in chapter 3. Each time, it's right in the context of the woman reflecting on, exulting in the joy of being with her lover when she stops to give this warning to the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, who are these daughters? Well, these are the young women. 
These are the virgins who have not yet been betrothed. They are the ladies in waiting, as it were. And they are, they are seeing both sides of this thing happening. They're hearing how wonderful the marriage bed is. They're hearing how great it is to delight in the love of a spouse. And the woman knows the temptation will be there to awaken those feelings before you're ready to enact those desires, to act on them before it's appropriate, specifically before one is married. That's why, she says, love must be guarded. She says it is like a powerful force that you dare not release until the right time. Instead, you guard it. You guard yourself. You guard your feelings. And you do not let those passions be awakened until the right time. Now here, I want to specifically talk with our young people a little bit. And I would love to camp out on that idea and draw out lots of implications for hours, but they will turn the mic off, okay? So we can't do that. So let me just say one thing here, one bit of advice. I'll play Mythbuster with you, okay? Is that all right? In the back, in the front, wherever you're at here. Mythbuster, okay? The question that is perennial. It's been asked since I was your age and probably older. It's still being asked today. Can a guy and a girl just be really good friends? That's the question before us. The answer, no, 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 like Paul. And again, I will say, no, it does not work like that. It is a myth, it is a fantasy, it is a wish that will not be fulfilled. It is probably dreamed up by guys who want to get girls to let their defenses down. It will not happen. Someone is going to have affections. Someone in that relationship, or both, there are going to be affections had and someone's either going to get hurt or you're going to wind up somewhere where you don't want to be. Now, am I saying don't have friends of the opposite sex? Not at all. Not at all. But what I am saying is don't go playing with the fire of love. Do not go playing with those passions that are there waiting to be unleashed within your heart. You start spending time with that girl. You start understanding how her mind works. You start understanding the kinds of things her heart longs for and you will begin to fall in love with her. It's, that's the way it is. That's the way God has designed us to be. That's the way He's created us. Intimacy in one area leads to intimacy in other areas, eventually all areas. That's why even if you're dating, you don't go off by yourself and have a Bible study with your girlfriend. You go to a nice, good Christian college campus like I went to, and you will hear horror stories of couples who had the best intentions, just dating, not even engaged yet. They had devotions together, and guess what it led to? Sex. The one thing that they didn't want to happen. You don't understand, but the more time you spend with someone, the closer you get with them, particularly people of the opposite sex, you are emotionally bonding to them the way you should be bonding to a spouse. And pretty soon the emotions that should be saved for a spouse, the same kind of investment that should be saved for them, and suddenly it's somebody you don't know that's going to be your spouse. And again, someone is going to get hurt. It may be you, it may be them, it may be both of you. I say this not just because I think it's biblical, but I say this because this has been borne out over and over and over again in the life experiences of many of my friends and even me, myself. You have to limit your interactions. You have to be thoughtful in how you go about building friendships with people of the opposite sex. Limit your emotions. Limit your words. Limit your thoughts. Limit your time. Guys, find some other Christian guys and go hang out and do guy things every once in a while, okay? Call me up. 
I'll do whatever you want. Okay? May not be any good at it, may not be fun to be with, but, but you, need to, you need to have, the Bible is very clear, that there is a kind of male friendship that needs to be stoked and created, not in any obviously what we contemporary think homosexual way, but in a kind of David and Jonathan way, a kind of David and the mighty man, a kind of Jesus and the disciples way, where you have manly men who are friends with other manly men and not just seeking deep relationships with girls. Ladies, you need to do the same do the same. Don't unintentionally begin investing emotionally into a person that you're not ready to invest in yet. Make your best friends, ladies, like yourself. Listen to the wise words of this song. It's a reason why it's called wisdom literature. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Again, biblical advice, practical experience. It will hurt. It will get you in trouble. So guard yourself. Guard the love that God intends for you to have only for your spouse. Don't play with the consuming passions that will quickly well up inside you. Those passions are good and are to be enjoyed, but only in the right context of marriage. And it's in marriage that we find our next characteristic of love. The third thing we need to see is that love is meant to be loyal. Love is meant to be loyal. Verse 6. The woman says to the man, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It fla- its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. A seal, of course, was a sign of ownership or a sign of authenticity. Now, most of us don't use seals anymore. I mean, that's just not part of our culture. We still have something that functions kind of like seals. Okay, I doubt, I doubt many of you go into the store and just grab a, just grab a, well, some, I'm, I take it back, some of you do. But I know many more of you don't. You don't just grab a, a pair of jeans or a shirt off the rack, right size, fold it up in the back and go home. What do you do with it? Who made this thing anyway, right? You want to see the label. Why? Why do you look at the label? Well, some people say because I want to wear the latest fashion and be cool. Well, but that, most of us say, I want to make sure this thing isn't a piece of junk. I want to make sure I, I get it home and it's good. Now, sometimes those labels can fool you. For instance, I wore this shirt three times, and you see I now have this hole that's coming apart. That's ridiculous. You know what that says to me? Their seal was not very reliable, not much integrity. In fact, just, she's not in here, so I'll tell you. Melinda's had to throw this shirt away at the end of church. So, and I like this shirt, but there, there it is. So, but you're looking for something to say, this is an authentic thing. It's name brand. It should be good. Okay? Likewise, the seal. Sometimes if it was the king's edict, boom, yes, this is from the king. It's authentic. But more often than not, it said something about ownership. Okay? If I was, if I was little, I would be writing my initials in my, in my clothes, right? Particularly when you go off to camp. That's your seal. Don't you take that shirt out of the wash. That's mine. It's my Spider-Man shirt, and you're not getting it, right? I mean, that's the thing that, that's the thing that we talk about, right? Well, here in Israelite culture, everything had seals on it. Uh, the seal was, was, was common in all kinds of life. Some people would, would, would have them molded into a ring so they always had the seal with them and could seal everything and anything. Others of them had it into a kind of stamp that they might wear around their neck. But anything valuable was sealed with the seal. It was a mark. This is mine. It's nobody else's. And this is with this in mind, this woman is saying to her lover, her husband, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. There is a fidelity in the relationship that is being called for here. Just as one might mark something as their possession, as a sign that they want to keep that thing close by, it's valuable. She's saying, 
Mark me as your possession. Don't go looking for someone else. Don't claim someone else as your own. Don't leave me to be the property of someone else. Make me yours. Why? Because love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Now think about that word jealousy there. How is it being used? Sometimes jealousy is a sin, right? Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians 5? He lists all these, these things, like 14 things that describe worldliness, sinfulness, and jealousy is right in there. I was reading one preacher talk about a biography he was reading of, of Gustav Mahler. Now, I don't know much about Mahler. He's a classical composer, but he said that Mahler married this girl, Alma Schindler, who was a composer in her own right. She was composing music as well, but he could not cope with the kind of applause and recognition she was getting as a composer. He was, he was fearful that it was going to be more than his, and so on the day of their wedding, it's not surprising this marriage broke up. On the day of their wedding, he writes her a note and says, from now on, there will only be my music, not our music, but my music. That's jealousy. And it's the bad kind of jealousy. That's the sinful kind of jealousy Paul is talking about. But then there's also a good jealousy, isn't there? She says, jealousies, flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. What does Exodus 34 tell us? God says, I am the Lord whose name is Jealous. What does he mean? Do we start praying to Jealous? No. What he means is this. As Yahweh the Lord, as the one true and living God, he did not want his people worshiping other gods. He did not want his people worshiping and serving idols. He says to his people, we have entered into a covenant relationship, much like a marriage. I have redeemed you from Egypt. You promised to be my people. I promise to be your God. I have shown myself to be your God and to be faithful in that. Therefore, worship no one else. Likewise, a spouse has every right to say, I am jealous for your affections. We have pledged to love one another. Don't love anyone else the same way that you love me. Don't desire them the way that you have desired me. Don't give yourself to them the way that you have given yourself to me. There is a fidelity that should be part of the biblical love. And again, there is much that we could say here. We could talk about the danger of involving yourself with another woman or another man, particularly in the workplace, again, investing yourself the same way young people might do before marriage, after marriage. You know, despite popular opinion, statistically, most affairs aren't about sex. Most affairs are there because there is a perceived lack of emotional need in the relationship. A person feels unloved. They feel, they feel like they're not respected. They feel like they're not needed. And suddenly, they meet someone else. And with that person, they think, they understand me. They actually respect me. They actually love me. They actually feel like they need me. And that's where the relationship begins to click. And that's where the affair begins to happen. We could talk about all kinds of scenarios where we could be disloyal, but I fear the most common, the most acceptable form of disloyalty comes through pornography. Now, if there is any question about what that is, whether it's soft or hard or somewhere in between, Leviticus 18 makes it abundantly clear. If you are looking at someone who is not wearing clothes and who is not your spouse, you are committing sin. You are being disloyal. You are sinning against them. 
So regardless of whether it's in a magazine that you can get off the newsstand or something that has to come in a brown paper cover, the Bible labels that as sin. Perhaps it's just a fantasy in your mind. Sin. And whether you are preparing for marriage, seeking to guard that love until the right time, or whether you are already in a marriage, that is a disloyalty to the bond that God has created between you. You need to work at being, all of us need to work at being loyal in our love because that is how God has designed it to be. Finally, finally, love is meant to show endurance. Love is meant to show endurance. Part of this endurance needs to be picked up from verse 5, a verse that we skipped over a little bit earlier. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Now, this verse, frankly, is the bane of commentators. It's an odd verse. No one really quite knows what to do with it. People are a little confident, but at the end of the day, they reserve the right to say, I could be wrong. And so, um, because they're smarter than me, I want to say the same thing. I think I know what she's talking about, but I'm not sure I could be wrong. So if in five years from now, we preach through Song of Solomon, and I have something totally different to say, uh, you'll know why, all right? But I think what she is doing here is that she understands that as a wife, she is following in the footsteps of every other woman who has ever lived. Particularly in this case, she is following in the footsteps of her mother-in-law, who wed her father-in-law and who bore a son whom she is now married to. So she sees herself in the same place. She is repeating this enduring cycle that love is supposed to be. She has consummated the marriage, not just in the sheer ecstasy of expressing her love for her husband, but in the realization that this is more about them and this moment. It's more than just about us. We're here because another couple have lived and done this and they've had a child and now we're going to do the same. Love continues to endure through our children. It's part of the enduring legacy that love is meant to build in terms of a marriage. It's part of the larger picture of endurance built into love as the Bible defines it. And so the woman goes on to say, Love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know, I read this, and the first thing that comes to my mind is that character Wesley from the movie The Princess Bride. And if you've not seen that, uh, you've got this guy that men have tried to kill, they've tried to torture him to death, and yet there is still just this fleeting bit of life that will not leave him. He is mostly dead, as the miracle man says in the movie. What's holding him back? We find out it is true love. Later, when he is more alive and talking and and acting, interacting with people, he sees his bride, the princess Buttercup, and she says, I thought you were dead. And to which he replies this, death cannot stop true love. It can only delay it a while. And that's, I think that when you get to the Bible's perspective, they're actually getting pretty close on love here. Love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it. Neither can floods drown it. When death calls, who stops death? No one except for God, right? When death is on your doorstep, you answer its call. You have no choice in the matter. Also, with real love, the same is true. When it actually happens, nothing can stop it. Life may throw sin and pain and sorrow and regret at it in the form of sickness or poverty or the loss of a child. But genuine love looks at those things and endures. 
It doesn't mean that love doesn't strain. It doesn't mean that love doesn't bend. It doesn't mean that love doesn't feel pain, but it never breaks. It might feel pain, but it never dies. Why? Because those Two individuals have understood what God means love to be. They have found it in each other. and They not only take delight in it through physical intimacy, they also know there is nothing else like it in the world that it can be compared to. It is, in the woman's words here, priceless. She says, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You cannot buy true love is what she is saying here. Likewise, the inverse is also true. Your job isn't worth your marriage. If you're spending far too much time away from your wife and your marriage is deteriorating because of it, then quit the job. Your job is not worth your marriage. Your friends, whatever it is that you put in there that that the other person feels like is taking too much time, you're not able to invest in the relationship, it's not able to grow, it's under strain, you get rid of that thing because it's not worth it. It's not worth the loving marriage that God has put you in by His grace. When we see the biblical picture of what love is to be, we can see just how sinfully we have degraded love and intimacy and marriage in our day. And we need to understand that holding a biblical line about love and sex and marriage isn't just for our good. All of these things point to something greater. And we need to understand this because if we don't understand this, we will not treasure and we will not fight for purity in those things. How does it point to something different? This is how, this is how God and His relationship with His people is pointed to in the context of this book. We read it through the lens of Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul explains how husbands and wives are to relate to each other in marriage. He explains what their roles are and what marriage should look like. And at the end, he arrives at verse 32 and he says, Of all this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that this marriage refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here is Paul's astounding assertion, and that is this. God explicitly, intentionally created marriage for at least one purpose, that we might better understand how Christ loves his bride, the church. Now think about that for a minute. He could have have designed humans a lot differently. We could have been completely asexual and kids could have butted off our arms, okay? I mean, uh, in the infinite wonder of creation, we see how he could have done things a lot differently. But he didn't do that, did he? he? He didn't do that. He designed us, he programmed us to live a certain way, to desire one another in a certain way. And he has given us instruction that we might know the proper way to express those things. And why has he done all that? So that we might be able to see the gospel in our marriages. That we might be able to see the truth of Christ's love for his church and the church's love for them. So when a husband loves his wife sacrificially, it shows us something of Christ's love for his people. When a wife willingly and joyfully submits to her husband's leadership, it's a reflection of the church's willingness to follow Christ. When there is a mutual commitment we have between Christ and the church, there's a beautiful picture that's there. But the opposite is also true. When marriages are lived poorly, the truth of Christ's love for the church is obscured and even dishonored. When spouses do not love each other, Christ is dishonored. When spouses do not delight to be in each other's presence, Christ is 
dishonored. When spouses do not remain faithful to each other, Christ is dishonored. This is why Christians cannot let their marriages fail. Because marriage is designed to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel. Now, all of us, if we are honest, have to stand back, and, and those of us that are married, and, and look back and say, we've not always done it right. If someone has, has stripped out all of the moments of our marriage and laid them out, there will be times, perhaps even seasons of life, in which Christ was not glorified in that marriage. We were not living as we should. But this is part of the gospel message, and that is this. Sins are forgivable. You can move beyond the past. It doesn't have to remain the same as it is now or the way it was. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus died for sinners. He died that sinners might be forgiven of their sin. That not only would they be forgiven, but that the power of sin might be broken on their lives so that by faith in Him, they might pursue a true righteousness before God. And that's especially true this morning when it comes to our marriages. Either now in your marriage or as you prepare for marriage one day, strive to make sure your love is passionate, guarded, loyal, and enduring. That is biblical love. Father, as we come to the end of our time looking at your word, we are thankful for it. We're thankful for the direction it gives us. We're thankful for the instruction we receive. Father, we pray that we would not go away unaffected, unchanged by what you have delivered to us in your book. Father, we pray that you would have spoke into our hearts and by the power of your spirit, God, that you would, in the coming days and weeks, allow us to be transformed by its life-giving presence today. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond to the